G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan, and good to be with you on this topic, which is one of your favourite topics. Absolutely, Dad. I've, oh, I've loved thinking about this during the week, and as you say, certainly one of my favourite topics, and a bit of an early Christmas present in some ways that you've given me to uh, be able to do a podcast on sport. So this uh, will, of course, come out in the new year, but we are recording this just before Christmas where, Dad, you and I have got a bit of sport on the cards over the next couple of weeks with the cricket and oh, all that sort of stuff. So oh, it'll be a good time to talk about this. It's always a very special time in Melbourne, the Boxing Day test, isn't it, that we've gone to for many of the previous years but also many of us have been watching the World Cup and there was just a sensational final wasn't there talking about sport what an uplifting experience that was seeing Lionel Messi and Argentina get up. Absolutely oh big big Lionel Messi fan here dad so yeah it's been a big week for me following all that sort of stuff and I suppose in some ways that was part of the motivation for today's episode because like you know I'm just an absolute sports snuffy and when something like the world cup comes along you know i just get so much out of it it's just you know puts me in the best mood for weeks on end and you know you're talking to all your friends who are into it too and you just feel super well connected with everyone and so we thought almost as part of that well i almost take the lead a little bit on this one dad and uh thought I'd, I'd try and convey some of that to you all out there in terms of i suppose what sport can be and, and what i find it to be anyway Terrific. So some of your enthusiasm can rub off and there's a lot of enthusiasm there, that's to be sure. <laughs> Absolutely. As uh, Yeah, we, we might uh, find out a little bit today. But Dad, we've called today's episode The Satisfaction of Spectator Sport. So I know I'll certainly be able to speak a lot to that notion, but uh, what are we going to be talking about today? Yes, well, one of the things that actually struck us leading up to today is so many people spend a lot of time, leisure time, watching sport and we're particularly talking about spectator sports so watching often professionals high level athletes and competitors there's been the recent world short course swimming events in Melbourne like there's been a whole lot of sport recently and a lot of people will watch a lot of sport over summer as well the summer holidays that are coming up and yet when looking at psychology in the literature generally there's not a hell of a lot on it Despite how much time people spend watching sport, I thought compared to all sorts of human behaviours, there's not so much on it. And we talk about sport in terms of people engaging in it because it's exercise. We've often talked on this podcast about how engaging in exercise is one of the best things that you can do for your mental health as well as your physical health. But maybe some of the mental health benefits of watching sport, some of the joy in it, some of the other benefits in it, have been underemphasized. Well, I'd certainly agree with that. And I think maybe even in recent times too, like we've seen maybe a bit more of a push for sport to become a little bit more commercial in some ways. And, and maybe there's a, a growing notion that sport is entertainment and maybe nothing else. And look, as you know, Dad, that's a notion that I really push back against in terms of, oh, I think sport is so much more than that. And it's a metaphor for life and it can be a vehicle for exploring philosophy and all these things as we'll maybe get into a little bit today too but I think if we recognize some of the maybe the power and the benefits of sport then it can help us to maybe say resist some of the ideas that well for example like sport is maybe optimizing for superficial appeal in a way in terms of you know all everything on the surface looks great there's all this money being poured into sport but Unless we retain almost the principles about what makes sport great, well, I think we can almost subvert that if we, you know, over-commercialise it, put all this money into it and sort of, you know, put all the bells and whistles on it. I think it is important to look at, well, what is fundamentally important about sport in the first place? Yes, it seems to me that what you're on about is looking to encourage people to have a depth of appreciation about sport and maybe even finding further meaning in their experience of watching sport. What is it that is going on at the time over and above watching just these talented people run about a field or something like that? 
Well, certainly, and oh, maybe it's the, uh, the you know the product of conversations that we've had over the years, Dad. Where it's you know being about oh why are you why are you getting up on a Saturday night at two o'clock and wrecking your Sunday to watch a team overseas? Like to me, that's just self-evident, and uh, and maybe something that hasn't been as obvious to you, and it'll be good to discuss with you about today. Okay, well, I look forward to that because some of my thoughts initially on an appreciation of sport dare I say, some of the more straightforward ways that we can relate it to conventional psychology. And there certainly are a number of principles where we can see how watching sport and spectator sport can be of benefit to us. And it might be worth even describing some of those earlier and you can describe some of those, dare I say, deeper levels of appreciation beyond that. Well, certainly. Let's get into those now, I reckon. What are some of those more recognised principles that, I suppose, link conventional psychology and sport? Okay, well, at a simple level, we can think of the PERMA model of positive psychology, P-E-R-M-A. So what gives us positive affect or joy? Well, many people find it enjoyable to watch sport engagement, or we can link with friends and we can be cheering at a particular match, cheering our team on. That shows a kind of engagement. We make an effort to, say, drive up to Melbourne or put in the time to go to sporting events. So there's that engagement, relationships, being part of a fan base, a fan group, having other friends who follow a similar team, even if people follow different teams, just the way that you often have a topic of conversation. So often a topic around lunchtime or people playing golf together or doing different kind of things, often the theme will be around sport. Meaning, I'm actually going to leave that more to you to spell out some of the meaning that you find in sport, and I do too in many ways, but you'll be able to elaborate that further. Achievement, we can also talk about whether there is there any achievement in spectator sport, like after all, we're not necessarily on the field or on the tennis court when we're watching people play sport, but can there be elements of achievement that come in to spectator sport? I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. But when we look at those principles, I would think of other kinds of interventions in psychology or other suggestions, approaches in psychology that fit in with those perma advantages of watching sport. And I suppose in some ways, like we were having a, a little bit of a chat about this off air, Dad, and like in some ways I sort of, you know, I didn't necessarily like the idea of maybe just talking about sport in those terms, like partly because, like as you said, there's not a whole lot out there at the moment about, say, the benefits of watching sport. But I think what is out there, a lot of it, say, does relate to maybe that more superficial level of things. Like I don't necessarily want to, say, trivialise positive psychology and all this sort of stuff, but like there really is maybe a deeper aspect of, say, meaning and identity that comes into sport that will be good to talk about with you more. But just before we do get there, I know, like, for example, there's PERMA, but what are some of the other conventional aspects of psychology that link sport? Okay, well, just say in cognitive behavioural therapy, one of the main strategies for depression is at first encouraging people to engage in activities that give them a sense of pleasure or achievement. Now, let's take pleasure. Many people, one of their favourite pastimes will be watching sport. Football, cricket, tennis, netball, a whole range of different things that people can enjoy. Well, many people would be spending hours on a weekend watching sport. Well, that's got to be a clue that that's one of the main things that people find enjoyable. There are also those notions of moments of joy in positive psychology, even micro-moments of joy. Well, whenever you watch a team, say Australian football, each time your team kicks a goal, that's a micro-moment of joy right there. So there's lots of these little experiences that bring up that positive affect. And we know that even brief periods of joy can actually have a lasting benefit sometimes hours afterwards. Well, if you spend an afternoon watching football or any favourite sport, netball, any favourite kind of sport, well, that's likely to have lots of micro moments of joy in it. Then there's going to be the social interaction. Often there's humour around it, people in a crowd. That's one thing I always enjoyed about football crowds, just hearing the jokes that people would crack, the bit of repartee that would be there. But also often people would go there with friends, friends or family. That's one of the main things that our family's done over the years for enjoyment, going and watching the football on a weekend in Geelong then it's also, I suppose, 
that aspect of appreciation of beauty, that's one of the strengths in positive psychology. That particular character strength is not just about watching, say, beautiful sunset or artwork. That particular character strength, appreciation of beauty, is also appreciating technical proficiency. So there's something aesthetic in that. Seeing someone execute any particular sporting or athletic ability at a very high level of proficiency, appreciating that kind of skill, that's also part of that appreciation of beauty. But then I think it goes beyond that as well. It does relate partly to our sense of culture and identity. There can be a deep belonging, and I think that's reflected partly in some of the scenes that we saw in Buenos Aires. There are millions of people out on the streets after their World Cup win well, just that kind of alliance that people have with, say, their national team in that kind of situation, that's actually part of their identity, their culture, to the point where many people said, well, we've been living in poverty for many years, 40% of their population is living in poverty, and yet people saying that they feel that so much about how their life is at the moment is worthwhile or going well because their team won this World Cup tournament. So there's a Obviously something deeper going on there than just watching a match for an hour and a half or a couple of hours. Well, it's so true and oh, this is, it's probably the thing in the world that I find just absolutely most fascinating more than anything else, Dad, in terms of why that is. Like wh- why is it that on one level, you know, sport and say like take football for example, like as we've seen in Argentina, you know, all these people in Buenos Aires out in the middle of the night celebrating their team getting back. Like, on one level, all football is is, you know, kicking a little pocket of air around a field towards a target. Like, you can kind of break these things down to their just kind of trivial basics. But then I think when you really look into it, like as we'll, we'll get into, there really is so much to it. And, like, I, I just find that so fascinating, that aspect of, like, why is it that sport motivates people to act in those ways, to feel these you know, certain emotions, all this sort of stuff, when on the surface, you know, it is seemingly something that doesn't involve us at all. And, like, you know, I said a little bit facetiously before in terms of, like, you know, getting up at 2am and, like, there's been a couple of times where, you know, probably justifiably so, you've called me out on maybe getting up a little bit too much to uh, watch sport, as we've maybe just seen a little bit with the World Cup there as well. But, like, I genuinely almost have this curiosity about why this is a thing and in some ways like this is this is what I, I really want to find out in my life dad in terms of what is the crux of the importance of all this sort of stuff so it's yeah I find it fascinating anyway yeah look I might add well I got up at 2am as well and a number of other times early for the world cup so look I'm with you on that for a number of events but I can remember also in the past that you'd get up through the night for maybe what a couple of weeks in a row for the tour de france for example So clearly that's something you found very, very meaningful from teenage years and that is part of your, well, work or occupation as a podcaster too. Many people would know that you do the Geelong Cats podcast to the final bell. You also do the AFLW, the Women's Cats podcast and there are other things that you're involved in as well in the sporting field including having studied sports journalism at university. I think a number of people might know that but not everyone but Rowan here's your chance, here's your platform, have the floor, tell us all what's so special about spectator sport. (laughs) Well Joe I'm a little bit nervous now Dad I'm feeling the pressure in some ways but like as you said like I'm just an absolute nuffy for some of this sort of stuff. And like, I suppose fundamentally it comes down to the idea that for me anyway, like sport is a metaphor for life and it's a vehicle for exploring, you know, philosophy and psychology and, and so many of these aspects. And like, as I say, like I just find it so interesting as to why they are, in my view anyway, so intrinsically involved in sport. And like I suppose to start anyways, Dad, like we're, we're going back a little bit now, like it's a little bit of a, a long run up at it in some ways. But like when I think about sport, for example, the idea of a hero comes to mind like obviously there's individual sports like say you've got a tennis player who support like they're in some ways a bit of a hero but whether it be a player in your team or sometimes even players in opposite teams like sports people are heroes in this way and like if we think back to like even what fundamentally a hero is and like as I say we're getting back a little bit now but like say if you go back to how the idea of a hero developed in society and like I believe it came from the ancient Greek term heroes 
which basically meant humans, either male or female, who were endowed with superhuman abilities. So there was this notion that basically everyone sort of, you know, had abilities and there were some people who were better at those things than others. And in many ways, it was like a mythology developed around those people who had these superhuman abilities. Like there was these stories that developed in a way to celebrate these people with superhuman abilities. Like I think of maybe the prototypical hero in a way, like Achilles from the Iliad, like the Greek hero Achilles. And if you look at in some ways the function of well, the literary figure Achilles, like why would parents, for example, have told their children about, you know, that the hero Achilles and For me, there's almost two aspects to it. There's the ability aspect of it in terms of saying, you know, we we celebrate these abilities like, you know, in a a society that celebrated war in ancient Greece, you know, that's part of it. Like he was a very good warrior and so we celebrate that aspect of it. But to me, there's also another aspect of it which is more to do with values. It's not just that someone's, you know, basically really good at someone and achieves the outcome of winning. It's also how they go about that winning. Like, for example, Achilles, it wasn't just that he was the best warrior by competency. He almost had this system of values that this story and mythology was created to convey, I would guess, largely to children, but to everyone in society at that time, that, for example, these are the values to be celebrated. And so, you know, the character of Achilles developed around these values and the story comes in basically at him winning over another set of values in a way. So essentially like the function of that story, I think, is, you know, like I say, like for parents or for people to teach others, whether it be in their family, in their community, those who they connect with, that this is, for example, a set of values and a system of values to be celebrated And like they say, the mythology and the stories of people like Achilles essentially are just in some ways consolidating that celebration of that value set, if that makes sense. Yeah, so in a way you're saying that these heroes would represent the best in us, which is like uplifting and inspiring, but not just as a physical specimen, but also people who represent the best in us in terms of virtues. So it's got kind of like a personality or a psychological aspect, but also when you're describing values, almost a spiritual aspect to it as well, people who represent these virtues. Well, absolutely. Like there's that aspect to it of you want someone to obviously say triumph on your behalf. Like You want to be going for the team that you know wins in some ways, but There's also this aspect to which you affiliate with those who you relate to. So, for example, if you're hearing a story about someone who goes about things in a similar way to what you do, well, like they're the protagonist of the story in some ways. Like that that's the function of the story is so that the audience can put themselves in that protagonist position and sort of get something out of it that way. Yeah, I remember you saying something earlier, the audience putting themselves in that position. You were saying something about champions. Yeah, what do you mean by a champion? Well, I find it fascinating that we even use the term champion in sport. Like, for example, you know, literally, like a a champion is someone who basically represents another person's cause. Like, basically, you know, you might have someone champion your beliefs in a certain way or, you know, I believe it was back in the day when people would fight to the death and that sort of thing. You could basically have a champion fight on your behalf. But like, I find it so interesting that this term is inculcated sport. Like when someone's a sporting champion, we're not just recognising that they've won. It's not just saying that they you know, achieved the outcome of winning. It's saying that they did it by representing our cause the best, if that makes sense. It's saying, hey, these are the values that we basically want represented on the field and this person achieved the outcome as well as represented those values, as well as representing the cause in some ways that we want represented. Like, I find it interesting as well, like in AFL, for example, instead of just having like a, a most valuable player at the end of the season, we have a best and fairest. So like we explicitly link these ideas of it's not just about who's the best at the end of the season, it's who's the best having displayed the values that we want celebrated. So it's not just about your team winning. Like if your team won but someone cheated, you're not going to get the satisfaction from that because people actually haven't enacted the values that you want to see enacted as well. So it's partly about the way of winning as well. 
Absolutely. And that's where we get terms like, for example, the spirit of the game. Like, you know, it's one thing to win, but it's not just win at all costs. Like, what are those costs? Like, in some ways, they're a cost to your value system because it's someone who's achieved someone whilst encroaching on the way that you want to go about it, if that makes sense. And that's why I think on some level, like, there is such a link between sport and identity, It's because we are seeing people essentially represent the way that we want to go about things. You know, it's representing our value set almost in a way that's linked with these like superhuman abilities in a way. So like these people are champions, not just for, say, the team that we go for, but they're also champions for... So the yeah, like as I say, the values that we represent. So whether it be the the way that we want to go about it on the field, like whether it be a sportsmanship or you know, like these principles of fair play, like it's more than just about who wins. It's who wins almost whilst representing us, our team, and our supporters the best. Okay, well, look, if there are any Australian characteristics that we would like to see represented, uh, have you got any thoughts about that? Like, you're saying that champions represent values in certain ways. Well, presumably different countries or cultures have different values. Any thoughts on that? What kind of values that Australians would welcome? Absolutely. Well, Dad, I I, I didn't know you were going to ask me this question, and I've, I've in some ways been waiting to get this out, because I've got this little theory that I haven't really spoken about with too many people, but... I think it relates here in some ways and and that's that culture and sport and the cultural expression related to sport is it's inherently tied to the values of a country like I find it so interesting that for example in Australia like you look at the history of Australia it was for example people obviously there's a, a whole history to Australia in terms of an unrecorded history of First Nations people who lived here but almost like say English Western our idea of you know federated Australia in the last say hundred and however many years like it was people who essentially came over from England you know a lot of time on prison ships like they were potentially people who are a little bit down and out in society who you know maybe not have been born with a whole lot and who you know were were potentially on the wrong side of the tracks for lack of a better term but like I find it so interesting that for example a in Australia we celebrate the underdog like Know, the almost prototypical Australian team is like the, the Socceroos who are, you know, back against the wall fighting against, you know, the might of these bigger overseas countries. Like, A, I think that relates to Australia's history in a way in terms of how we're a, a very young country, for example, when World War One came around. And so we had a very different experience of World War One in terms of, for example, nation building, whereas other countries it was more defending the nation that was already there. But... The other aspect that, say, I find interesting about Australia is, like, all of our competitions are finished with a grand final, basically. Like, for example, football in England and in Europe, a lot of the time it's a league format. So the team who finishes on top at the end of the year in terms of the team who's performed best throughout the season, they're the ones who are awarded the trophy. Whereas in Australia, we, like, take it one step further and we say, okay, now you can be best positioned going into the final series – But essentially the whole league is just to position and posture everyone for finals in terms, you know, it's it's all about just working out what order you're going to compete in for the final series. And then the real big thing that we celebrate at the end of the season is whoever wins the grand final. So it's tied to this idea of like a narrative in a way. It's not necessarily just the team that has dominated all year and is winning at the end of the day. Like in Australia, we celebrate the team that whether it be has come from an underdog position, but we tie it to this narrative of a particular day. Like you have to be the best team on a particular day. And like, I wonder if that is related to, for example, like our our history where, you know, in England, for example, a lot of the people who would have been sent over to Australia, as I say, they wouldn't have necessarily come from, you know, the, the top of the socioeconomic tree in some ways, like they would have felt that, society was conspiring against them and so they would have thought that if things were a like for lack of a better term a complete meritocracy then they wouldn't have as much of a chance because the way that you know the system was set up it was you know it was consolidating power towards the top and that these people wouldn't have a chance so it was almost like oh this may be my kind of kooky theory but I wonder if when those people came out to Australia and had an influence on the way that sport was played, even if it was maybe more subconscious, it wasn't explicit and they recognised this at the time, 
they thought, hold on, it's not just about who's going to you know, consolidate power over the course of the season, for lack of a better term. We want to give everyone a chance at winning and... You know, therefore, you know, there's, a, a, there's advantages that you can gain from, you know, say, for example, working hard and all this sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, you don't necessarily have to be in the very first position the whole way through to gain the best outcome in the end, if that makes sense. So hopefully I'm making sense in terms of, uh, like I just find it so interesting that if you look at the history of Australia and, and, for example, some of the types of people who would have found themselves in Australia when all of this culture of sport was developing that they in some ways would be the kind of people who would be incentivized by a competition that isn't just a, a full meritocracy over the course of the year for example okay so kind of like an egalitarian underdog model gives everyone a chance one of the things that reminds me of as an aside is there's also an australian style and culture to research i would never have known this but we went to a national conference, I think it was in Tasmania about 15 years ago. And one of the visiting keynote presenters said about a paper, you would only hear of that paper presented in Australia. He said, in Australia, you have a very pragmatic approach to psychology. This paper is on, hey, let's hypnotise these people and see how they go on this task. And he said, it's very pragmatic it's not so much like Europe or even America where people would have looked at the theory behind the psychological principles and then derive an idea from the theory of what you'll test next, that more, if you like, philosophical, academic way of developing an idea. It's like, hey, let's suck this and see. Let's actually do this. Let's try out this action. And then what difference does that make here? And whether he said it or whether we thought afterwards that there was this wide land where people were looking to develop also further infrastructure of roads and I suppose buildings in different kind of ways and such a vast continent and a lot of challenges to do that so people actually had to be quite pragmatic in dealing with significant obstacles along the way so the emphasis was not on finessing theory Developing ideas and theories would really work well in Europe where for hundreds of years people might be, again, sitting in armchairs and thinking of ideas and building on that, whereas in Australia there was this emphasis on practical development and building and infrastructure and getting stuff done. So what it takes to work. So it's interesting that even in science there can be culture and fashion. Well, yeah, absolutely, and like, I suppose even to make the point even further, like I find it so interesting to say, for example, look at America as well. Like you described a little bit of it there, but for example, America has like a similar system to Australia where they have like grand finals, but they'll have a best of seven series. And even the way that Americans celebrate sports people, like there's this element of domination that comes into it like in in basketball it's all about you know you posterize someone in terms of you, you do a slam dunk on them so they'll be basically on the bottom of the slam dunk on the poster <laughs> like there's so many aspects of american sport which is to do with celebrating the best and you know the the goat and like all these terms like they're such american terms and i wonder if part of that comes from for example america's history of having a civil war with England, for example, who were their kind of political oppressors at that time. And the French were also in that part of the world. And obviously they had a, a checkered history with the Native Americans in that part of the world too. So, like, you can see how, like, those people who you know, became Americans in America, like, the idea of dominating others around them like, would be appealing to them in a way. And, and for me, anyway, like, I think that has, to a degree, inculcated their cultural expressions around sport. Now, it's interesting, earlier, you were talking about how champions look at the positive side of sport and the virtues, but then you're talking about something else dominating. And it reminds me of another kind of idea about sport, which doesn't maybe look at necessarily the best in us, but looking to manage the worst in us. Just say, what's some of the worst in human beings? Well, we can fight and kill each other. You know, be very competitive. Certainly, there could be fighting for land and resources. So it's only natural that our instincts include these fight and flight responses. And so in some ways, it looks to me like sport also could be seen as a way of sublimating these human instincts, taking these base kind of instincts towards you know, killing, maiming each other, competing. But instead of wars being fought where people are shot or killed or whatever, if there can be 
almost symbolic wars dealt with through sport or symbolic competitions, maybe that's a way of dealing with our other more base or aggressive instincts as well and maybe helping cultures live more safely together. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I think absolutely in terms of like, I'm, I know there's been research done about say young males who play sport are less aggressive off the field. So like I suppose on a personal level, like it works in that level but like I certainly agree with you in a way but like I find it so interesting that for example when we have like a a sports team that has like a mascot like the mascot's almost like a a totem for these kind of values that I was talking about before and like a lot of those mascots are like aggressive or dangerous animals or creatures that kind of strike fear into you in a way like in some ways there's this almost controlled aggression element to sport. And I think on some levels that maybe works on a a personal level in terms of, you know, like we see all these like cowardly one-punch acts that happen in, say, the CBD. Like one thing that I think can combat that is to develop sporting infrastructure in those communities and have people, you know, even just spending a lot of time with older blokes and and that sort of thing too. Like I think it can be such a good personal outlet. But like, for example, we've just seen the World Cup and – you know, what a, a wonderful, great event that is for so many reasons. But in some ways, the World Cup, I think, has been, I don't want to say commandeered for almost like the, the function of being like a war proxy, but like there's an element of that. Like when we look at, say, sports washing, like what are they trying to do? Like in some ways, it's to gain the benefits of a war without having to have the conflict in some ways. And like, for example, you look throughout history at even a lot of the the big wars that we've had were preceded by sporting events where the, whether it be a dictator, like for example, the 1936 Olympics with Hitler, like is a classic one, but Mussolini had a World Cup as well. The 1978 World Cup in Argentina is another classic one. Like there's been sort of violent conflicts that have almost been precipitated by a sporting event that has drummed up national support and patriotism in a way that these despotic leaders are then able to leverage for war. And so, like, absolutely, I think sport can serve in in some ways as a substitute for that. But I also think we have to be pretty careful about, say, being aware of this sort of stuff because if we're not aware of it, then you can maybe leave yourself open for maybe sport being used a little bit for nefarious purposes a little bit more. But, like, for example, I think absolutely yes that, you know, in a perfect world, if sport functioned perfectly and we had, you know, for example, maybe authoritative bodies in place who knew how to put their foot down where you know value systems got encroached and all this sort of stuff like in some ways I think this is why it's important because like sport is such a powerful tool like as you say I think it's so powerful that it can substitute a war and so like yeah like I'm I'm getting a little bit sidetracked now but I think absolutely it's it has such the power to do that and maybe we've we've only probably more seen examples of how that's been kind of used against us a little bit in recent times. Like maybe have, we haven't seen that as much how that can be used for benefit. But at the same time, like I think, you know, for example, in every country that has, for example, domestic football leagues, like there's, you know, we can't compare to the amount of, say, aggressive acts that would exist in society had they not been there, for example. But like I think there is benefit to having organised sport as an outlet for, say, aggression. But then there is this almost like, say, kind of geopolitical aspect to it where, you know, it's been used for nation building and things like that. And the reason for that is I think it is so powerful that it can substitute a war. Yes, well, actually, when I think of what you were saying earlier about mascots often having an aggressive quality to them, despite the Geelong mascot being half-cat, a pretty fluffy kind of character, I might (laughs) say, but if we think of the pictures of how the cats are represented you know with their claws you know that's an aggressive aspect you get other teams often called the tigers the lions you're not going to get too many football teams called mice or something like that you know go for the more fierce creatures so it seems to me there is that kind of tailored aggression it does take some of those instincts that we have and look to channel them in a more socially appropriate way and another way I've heard that put before, is that sports tend to reflect some of the more 
instinctive reactions that humans and animals can have fighting, fleeing and flouncing. Well, fighting, well, boxing's an example of that. Fleeing, sprinting and any running races. Flouncing, well, that could be on the parallel bars or something along those lines, a kind of you know, showing off of one's physical attributes kind of thing. So it does seem to me that sport takes some of these basic human instincts and looks to channel them into something more uplifting and aesthetic. Well, yeah, I think that's so true. And like, I know we spoke in an earlier podcast, a very early podcast, in fact, out about sport that we did. In terms of how sport is, you know, essentially at its most fundamental level, like what it is, it's a team or a player that tries to make order out of chaos. And it is interesting, like I think it does come back to those maybe survival instincts. And like one thing that I find really interesting, I heard it put once, I, I can't even remember the exact sort of terms that we used or who said it, so I, I do apologise to whoever it was. But basically they said that there's only really like four types of sports. Like every sport comes down to like either being the first one over the line, gaining the opposition's territory, fighting someone or trying to hit a particular target. And you can almost put every single sport into those like four outcomes that you're trying to achieve and it's interesting like I think they do relate to in some way survival instincts. Look I'll just mention another aside in something I find uplifting about sport if partly it does represent some of these instincts which can even be warlike instincts how wonderful it is to be able to visit a different country or different culture and see the way that they express sport And I'll just mention specifically here, one of the most wonderful holidays that I enjoyed is when your mum Sue and I visited a couple of friends in Argentina, Mirta and Nicholas, and they treated us to go to the polo. And Argentina is such a wonderful example of a country where people can be passionate about sport, and they're certainly passionate about polo. These horses were the most remarkable horses. Many of them were bred to have certain characteristics and there was a whole technology also behind the aesthetics of that, but also the aesthetics of watching people play polo, the skill involved, the kind of atmosphere. To be able to get a window on a different culture that way could be a wonderful thing. But also as another example... Being invited to go to La Bombadero, this wonderful stadium to see the Boca Juniors and to see the passion of the fans, the way they'd be jumping up and down in the stands, to be able to pick up something of a different culture and revel in that, really enjoy that. That's a wonderful way of tapping into another culture and a different way of life. And I think it's like a a kind of universal language in different forms. Many of us, when we do visit friends or others in different countries, That's one of the activities that many of us will engage in, watching sport of one form or another and doing that with friends just adds that other dimension to it. Well, I think that's such a a good point in terms of it being a universal language. And like, there's just a a tiny point I wanted to pick up on there before we get into that is like Argentina is actually the perfect example for, say, a country that can use sport to substitute war. Like, for example, I only kind of fully conceptualized this in the last couple of days, Dad, but the reason that Maradona is liked so much in Argentina. Like, it was put to me, say, with Messi and Maradona. Like, Messi's obviously achieved what Maradona has done now. He's become his football equal in many ways. And a South American person put it to me that, yes, obviously, you know, Messi's on that level, but Maradona has something that Messi could never have. And that was in 1986, so three years after the end of the Falkland War against England. Maradona, in a World Cup quarterfinal cheats with his hand against the English and then obviously scored, you know, the goal of the century after. That wasn't the only thing he did. But this idea that, you know, basically in Argentinians' eyes, there'd been this unjust war that had been started by the English. And so for Maradona to get away with cheekily cheating in the World Cup quarterfinal and not only do it, but get away with it against the English to put them into the semifinal where they went on to win, it's like... My good word, what, and like, talk about the idea of hero representing values. Like, that takes it to a whole nother level, Dad. Well, I suppose that kind of retribution, so to speak, was very valued in that context. Hence, they called it the hand of God, didn't they? Absolutely. And, for example, in the most recent World Cup, just to finish this point off, like, the Argentinians 
still sing about Los Malvinas, which is the Falklands Islands. So, like, clearly, you know, football and particularly with the relationship between Argentina and England, who Argentina, all their major sports came from England, like polo, rugby, football, like, fascinating story. I'm getting a little bit sidetracked here, Dad, but, like, that idea of, like, the universal language, like, I think that is such a good one because, you know, we can communicate on this, you know, shared plane with people from so many other countries. Like, the World Cup is such a great example of that because like, I think FIFA has more member states than the United Nations. So there's more countries that are a part of FIFA than a part of the United Nations. So like, there is something so kind of fundamental about football in terms of the platform that allows us to connect with other countries. Yes, it shows that people get a lot of meaning out of it, doesn't it, for that number of people to be engaged at such a level. But one of the things I was thinking before as well, when we were talking before the podcast, I know that you relate following sport also to principles of flow. Now, often people might not have made that connection, and we've talked about flow in a previous podcast, but okay, here's your chance to talk about how spectator sport can also relate to flow. Well, I find it interesting, Dad, in terms of like I was watching something the other day and it was talking about flow. Like it had absolutely nothing to do with sport. And someone was going through the conditions, like chick set me highest conditions for flow. And as he was going through it, I thought it's almost like sport at like a fundamental level is set up in some ways to capitalise on those conditions or to create those conditions in a way. And I think it's, it's interesting if we go through them, for example. So I believe Csikszentmihalyi had a number of conditions for flow. And four of those conditions were you need skills and demand to be matched. So it's got to call upon your expertise. You need for there to be a tight coupling between you and the environment. You need clear information so it can't be ambiguous or vague. And failure has to matter. And now when we look at, say, those conditions for flow, which, you know, just don't relate to sport at all, but if we look at what those conditions are and how, say, sport has almost, like, come up with a solution to recreating those conditions, it's like, all right, skills and demand need to be matched. Well, that's what the concept of fair play and even competition is. Like, the theory behind sport is that you come up against someone who you'll compete quite evenly with. Like, that's so that both parties, like whether it be a team or a player, have their skills and expertise somewhat evenly matched. That's where, like in a lot of sports, they even have handicapping systems, don't they, to ensure that it is even. Exactly, yeah. Like, say, with golf's one, like, say, some forms of sprinting is another one like that. Like, absolutely, cycling is another one like that. But then the next condition, tight coupling with you and the environment. Well, what are boundaries on the field? like out of bounds or some form of out of bounds or out of play, like that occurs in nearly all sports. Or at least there's, you know, some restriction around where you can or can't go. Now that reminds me of an anecdote about Jakara Anthony, a downhill mogul skier who lives around Geelong, amazingly a world champion in this event that needs snow. That was the environment that she practised her wonderful expertise in. But I loved a description that she gave about the experience of flow coming down the mountain where she was like as one with her environment. And I suppose, like you're saying, the more that people appreciate a certain kind of sport and the challenge and skill involved, the more that people watching it also might have some sense of flow mesmerised by seeing that person being at one with the mountain. I think certainly. And the other thing is that moguls are in some ways the perfect example for that point because like you're going down a hill and there's all these kind of ice hillocks <laughs> on the, the hill that you're trying to go down as fast as possible. Like the person who goes down the fastest is the one who's most tightly coupled to their environment so they can most officially coordinate down the mountain and and not slow themselves up on the hills and that sort of thing like moguls is a great example for that condition of flow dad but the next one clear information like can't be ambiguous or vague like what's a referee or an umpire or even say like the rules of the game like quite often a referee or an umpire they'll be given a whistle so that whenever a rule has been broken Everyone who's watching or playing knows immediately because the umpire will blow their whistle and everyone can stop and, and go, all right, well, what is it? Like, that's about as you know clear and immediate a feedback and information as you can get, Dad. 
That's one thing I've always loved about sport compared to so much of life which is quite ambiguous about whether something turned out to be fully successful or not. In sport, you end up with an absolute scoreline. And if people are frustrated or angry with a referee thinking that they called it wrong, the point is you always end up with that scoreline. That, that's what stays there in history. That's what stays in the record books. And I like the way there's that resolution of the ambiguity. I even wonder if that's sometimes why people don't always like the video replay systems, even if they make it fairer. But they drag it out and they slow down that drama because it's partly the drama that makes sport and in the end that there is a result. Well, absolutely, and you know, I maybe don't want to get too far into this, but I suppose like what that reminds me of is like superposition on a quantum level. Like you have a, a probability function about where a, a particle can be, but it's only once it's in superposition that you can basically ascertain where it is. So in some ways, that's like a sporting game. You know, there's all these kind of potentialities, and then the score is actually the the, well, the superposition of of the game. That's a point. Like I suppose in tennis, someone hitting the ball so close to the line, if it's a tiny skerrick out, it might still be called in. But if it's further out, there's a really, really outside chance it'll be called in, but maybe not. So in other words, there still is some ambiguity, isn't there? There's still some imprecision in sport. But in the end, a decision will be made. There's the scoreline. I like that about it. Absolutely. And and the last one, Dad, and this is my favourite of all of them because I think it's in some ways hilarious when you really think about it, and that's that failure has to matter. And this is what, I suppose, really drew me to the idea of sport and flow because, like what I was saying before, like football in some ways you're just kicking a pocket of air around a field. Like sport is such a, a trivial pastime in some ways, but it's also not. Like for, for some people, and you know, I'll probably put... You know, wouldn't say it's everything, Dad, but it's you know, it's a it's a good chunk of it. <laughs> I absolutely love sport. It's one of my favourite things in the whole world. And but at the same time, like there is this recognition that well, it it, it kind of doesn't really matter. And like I'm not sitting here, you know, lamenting the scores from 2011. It's kind of all about the next one. So like I suppose looking at that principle of failure has to matter. Like it's like we've artificially found a way to introduce the idea of failure mattering in sport even though at a fundamental level like it it actually doesn't but we've somehow been able to create a way that it does and that's what makes this whole thing work yes well i suppose the fact that people have so much passion about watching sport as has been reflected in Argentina 48 hours after the finish of the World Cup there's still what 4 million people in the centre of the city jumping around in Buenos Aires now that's something which seems to go beyond just a game doesn't it so it means so much that notion of success versus failure so to speak so wouldn't need too much more indication than that that shows that well success versus failure makes a difference well, absolutely, and like I find it so interesting. Like most of sports psychology, it seems like you you know more about this than me. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, but most of sports psychology seems to be about kind of removing this illusion that failure matters in a way. Like, if you think about, say, like a boxer's ring walk. Like, I think about this as a, an interesting analogy for almost the illusion of sport in some ways. Like, you've got. Everyone there who's listening to the music, watching this kind of intimidating figure coming out and almost putting on this song and dance to try and look a certain way and, you know, behave in a certain way to appear as intimidating as possible. But in their head, like all they would have worked on with their coach is basically being able to perform in a way that when someone gets into the heat of the environment, they're able to perform in a way that they would if there wasn't that there. Like they say, oh, it's can't exactly remember what the saying is but something like you don't rise to the occasion you sink to your you know systems that you've trained sort of thing in terms of you know it's not about sort of finding that extra 10% that's going to be there on the day it's actually about being consistent over a long period of time so that when you are on the day your performance is within a consistent range but that's only for the performer like for everyone else there whether it be watching or you know commentating all this sort of stuff like they do buy into this illusion that hold on you know everything's on the line here and you know it's it's life and death and it's you know winning and losing really does mean so much 
Yes, well, this might relate to that. I remember you saying about Ash Barty, the Australian tennis player, who retired in the last year after wonderful wins at Wimbledon and the Australian Open. And I remember one of the uplifting things about her that you described. In a sense, winning versus losing would make a big difference, but it clearly wasn't the whole world because she was able to retire at, what, the age of about 25 when she could have kept on being a champion for some time longer but I remember that as important or valuable to her as winning might be because she spent so much time training for it clearly trying to get that consistency of performance but I remember you saying that in the heat of the moment she would focus on the values she looked to live by whilst she was on the court so she'd focus on a particular word or virtue that she wanted to use. So I wonder if that gets back to your original point that you were making at the start too. Our champions might show this remarkable prowess based on all this effort over so many years, but also the importance of them demonstrating, displaying certain kind of values while they do that. Well, absolutely. Ash Barty's a great example of that. Like the other one that comes to mind is Roger Federer, who I believe he's three kind of philosophical tenets that he goes by have absolutely nothing to do with winning it's i believe humor gratitude and humility and so he uses those three kind of almost terms as a guide for himself so if he was just motivated by winning he'd he'd behave a lot differently he'd have probably a lot of a different persona he'd probably be a lot less liked dad and i suppose that gets to the other heart of it as well in terms of that's what people affiliate with with roger federer it's like it's not just that he wins or ash barty as well it's not just that they win there is this aspect of they go about it in the right way and so they're the ones that we want to affiliate with that way and does that mean that also when we're spectators that we should also consider the values that we bring to that? Does that mean as spectators that we might also bring in that humility, gratitude, whatever? What's the relevance of that attitude as spectators? Well, I think in some ways it invites us to because like, if we're someone who respects the way that Roger Federer goes about it, like that's in some ways him reverse engineering kind of the process that he has for how he is able to perform in a certain way whilst upholding those values that he has. But it's a really interesting question, I think, that idea of like to what degree are we as spectators, participants? Because like one thing I find fascinating is that when you go to, say, the MCG, so say there's a, you know, a big goal that's been scored in an AFL grand final, like all of the crowd reacts so quickly that it suggests that they're in flow. Like it suggests that there is an aspect of flow to watching sport just in, you know, it's not as if anyone would even have time to go, oh, what should I be doing right now? Oh, this is the time to celebrate. And then you get up. Like if you look at the videos of Federation Square during the World Cup, it's almost within a frame that everyone kind of has the realisation that the goal has gone in and starts celebrating before their kind of rational mind can kick in in a way. So I think there is this element to watching sport that is participatory in a way like for example when we're playing a video game like you might be you know controlling a character who's running around a little world and a game or whatever I think in some ways spectator sport is a little bit like that but obviously the degree of participation is less like for example as a Geelong fan like I was had a, a wonderful time at the grand final and you know Geelong won the grand final this year which just what a what a dream for that to be a thing dad but I wonder if there's almost degrees to which people would gain benefit from that in terms of if someone just said, oh, you know, like I don't really have a team, but if I had to pick someone, it'd be Geelong. Well, they'd probably go, oh, that's really nice, Geelong won, and, you know, that make them feel good for a little bit. But then maybe if someone went to, say, a couple of games over the course of the year and they maybe didn't follow it every week, but they still really enjoyed it, and maybe they'd get a little bit more, say, benefit out of Geelong winning than someone who was more of a casual fan and then if you take that principle to its extreme like maybe someone at the game cheering along almost intimately involved in the game at a cognitive aspect like I find it so interesting that for example when we watch sport quite often there'll be a a former player or someone who does have like intimate expert knowledge of the sport who's basically telling you what's going on And to me, that's because there is this element of participation, even if it's only through like an analysis level. Like we go back to things like, say, 
tight coupling with you and the environment. Like that's also to almost calibrate the way that you watch something with, you know, someone who is an expert in that field. Like if you were to watch a sport every day for a year, at the end of that year, you would know a lot more about what's going on than at the start. So what that suggests to me is that there is this, well, yeah, like a participatory aspect that comes in through, whether it be analysis, I, I guess is probably the main one that comes to mind, like supporting it and cheering and, and even just say identifying with a team and affiliating with a team that represents a certain set of values. And like the other thing is that it, it's almost a feedback loop as well in terms of you're constantly getting that feedback as to whether either you're on the right or wrong track in your analysis or you're on the right or wrong track in terms of, celebrating the kinds of players and values that you think should be celebrated. Well, I suppose that gets to the A, achievement in the PERMA model. So you're saying about this participatory element in sport. And, well, I suppose for that example, with the Cats also, you do the podcast with them. So you linked with the club in that significant media way, getting across messages, and that's about an analysis of the game afterwards. So what kind of sense of achievement do you get from watching sport? That I might mention has included, I don't know how many nights of watching the Tour de France over the last oh, 15, almost 20, yeah, it would be 20 years or so you'd watch so much the Tour de France. What have you got out of those 100 nights or more of watching the Tour de France? Well, I'm, uh, I'm ashamed to say it's probably a little more than 100 nights, Dad. I've uh, been pretty into it for a little while. But, uh, look, it, it's a hard one because, like, it, you know, in some ways I sort of shudder at that term, like, achievement because, like, the achievement's on behalf of the players in a way. But it's almost like a sense of, like, it's almost validation in a way. And, it, and that's where I wonder if there is this, like, say, identity aspect that comes into it through supporting a team and through affiliating with a team and like for example when I talk about say Geelong the team that wouldn't have necessarily changed a whole lot obviously you know you can talk about results and all this sort of stuff but in terms of like what the club means to me in a way well that wouldn't necessarily have changed with different players that have come in and out of the club like to me it's about the town and its connection with the town it's about its role in the community and things like this so the interesting thing that I find about that is that even though there's, say, different personnel and there's different individual personalities that have come through that, like, the team to me has almost been this constant thing that hasn't really changed. And, like, obviously there are things that, that can, I think, change in that. Like, for example, maybe the Australian cricket team, the whole sandpaper gate. Like, personally, for me, that really changed my perception of the Australian cricket team and I when people cheated by using sand yeah absolutely yeah Yeah. so like I personally found it a lot harder to identify with them but at the same time say with the Geelong stuff like it's maybe a little bit less achievement in validation at having aligned myself to the right team for me if that makes sense so like not that that's a real achievement like you know I'm I'm not necessarily patting myself on the back about that but there is this maybe positive feeling that comes from, you know, hitching my wagon to that team and sort of seeing them go all the way and almost like, I suppose, getting reward for emotional investment. Like, I wouldn't necessarily call that an achievement, but there is, say, some reward that comes from that. Yeah, it sounds like feeling good about making that conscious choice, not just to follow a team, but, well invest your interest and your attention and maybe I suppose also knowledge reading more about it thinking about it analyzing it being able to make arguments about the game I know that that's something that a lot of people really enjoy for example on the Monday after a game being able to talk with others and enjoying other people being able to argue the toss it's partly the I suppose the debating skill that comes into that as well. Well, absolutely. Like there is that aspect of it in terms of like, you know, I wouldn't necessarily even call it achievement, but like there is that thing of, you know, you're analysing the game over time, you get better at analysing the game and you might have me, you know, able to predict some elements of certain things, which, you know, in sport is just a You're just saying that because you won our work uh, footy competition this year. That's why you got that one in. Oh, look, you're uh, you're embarrassing me now, Dad. But uh, look at there you go. I've got to say, I won it last year. (laughs) Yeah, it was about time I uh, I got my name on the trophy. I I needed some achievement in that area, Dad. But no, like it it is an interesting one because like I think maybe the achievement on a maybe a personal level, like it's 
it's hard because achievement's kind of a big word. Like it maybe yeah. evolves sort of external validation at times and this sort of stuff. Like maybe there is just say quiet satisfaction that comes with getting better at analysing certain aspects of things. Okay, now look, one final thing that I would bring up in terms of spectator sport or any passion, it's something that Robert Valerand, a leader in positive psychology, raised when looking at the notion of passion. He talked about the contrast between obsessive passion and harmonious passion. And he said that we can be passionate about something, but it's not always good. If it's an obsessive passion... It's like an addiction, so our approach can be somewhat rigid to it. So we're driven to keep on, again, focusing on that activity, even if there's a downside, it might interfere with our relationships, things like that. I did see one article that actually interviewed partners of people who are watching sport, and they said that they thought sometimes that could interfere with their relationship if their partner was spending too much time watching sport, for example. By contrast, harmonious passion is when something is really integrated with our other activities and interests it's something that gives us a lot of joy it might lead us to improving our skills it might encourage us to engage in that sport itself and so we do more activity so there's this notion of these positive aspects of passion that we often relate to that word as a positive thing but it can sometimes get out of balance and become obsessive do you have any thoughts about that gauging that when we watch sport about the extent to which it will be harmonious or obsessive? Yeah, like it's a tricky one in some ways because I think like there's an element to which, you know, each case in sport where harmonious passion becomes obsessive, compassion can be slightly different at times. Like there can be political things and stuff that are involved, which maybe doesn't necessarily like inherently involve the sport in that way. Like I saw obviously the soccer in Australia where people pitch invaded sort of like just what a disgusting you know weak thing to do from those people and I view that as almost them using that sport as a vehicle for their nefarious motivations rather than that being an inherent issue with the sport like there's certainly an issue with say football being used as a vehicle for maybe other motivations but I wouldn't say it's say an inherent issue within football and maybe like I wonder if part of it is that seeing sports people as heroes in a way like it does involve this kind of almost proxy nature to it where someone is acting on your behalf and that almost has to come with a sense of say like acceptance or even say like surrender like when when it doesn't go your way you have to deal with that and that's basically what you sign up for in that sense like I look at those people who pitch invaded, you know, and obviously, you know, there's a whole lot of stuff going on with the A-League and, you know, all this sort of stuff. I won't get into that now. But from my perspective, their view on maybe the participatory element of sport got a little bit out of whack and they weren't ready to accept that their role in this situation wasn't to be on the field and all this sort of stuff. But to me, like, the the principle of it is it comes with this acceptance that – like, yeah, we can, you know, support these people. And, like, at the end of the day, they're doing it on, you know, on your behalf. And, you know, they're still the ones kind of out there and, and we're still the ones over the fence. And, you know, like, there is an acceptance that has to come in with that. And if maybe people think, you know, like, it, well, that that's when it stops becoming, say, like a proxy for things. Like, I think that's where sport can be a little bit of a trap because there is this, like, say, potential conflict of ideas in a way Like if people don't leave it on the field and if people say over identify with those ideas and and maybe them say winning against another set of ideas and like to me it just comes down to say acceptance that sport is sport. You've got to see it for what it is and you know it can serve all these absolutely wonderful purposes but there's still an acceptance that comes with going, hold on, it's not the be all and end all. Like you know it, it probably doesn't mean that we're never going to have a war again but it probably means that we might have less wars than we would have had otherwise. Yeah, I think it's fair enough to say that if people watching sport in any way, if it leads to violence, they act violently, well, that's not going to be a harmonious passion. By definition, that they're going to have worse relationships with other people, let alone potentially break the law and the rest of it. But I imagine, say, more generally, if people are moping around for two or three days after a loss or just getting drunk and angry or something like that or just losing their temper a lot, that would be maybe the example of more obsessive passion 
passion. But if it's partly people also learning about life, life involves winning and losing. We're not going to be winning all the time. That's one thing about participatory sport that kids learn from being part of any sporting team. They learn to manage aggression and they learn to manage also this notion of winning and losing. And some of that comes up in in spectator sport as well. Well, I think that's so true and it's so important as well because like at the end of the day, you know, you're not going to win at everything in life. And so, you know, that is where Sport can teach you that good lesson. It's not always a, an easy lesson, Dad. It's uh, yeah, it can be can be bloody tough at times. And I will say as well, like two or three days, like that's that's pretty quick at times. Like you've got to invest a little bit emotionally in order to get the most out of it, Dad. Oh, sometimes I think you might blur the line between harmonious <laughs> and obsessive passion, but we'll leave that to our listeners. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, this this conversation might continue off air a little bit, Dad. But uh, no, I thank you for uh, for giving me the opportunity to stretch my stretch my legs, so to speak, and to chat about all this sort of stuff. Like I haven't really spoken about it with too many people beyond a couple of friends who I've you know basically tied up and, and chewed their ear off about this sort of stuff. Well, Rowan, I very much look forward to that tradition of watching the Boxing Day Test with you in about a week's time. Absolutely. There's uh, plenty of sport to get our teeth stuck into. So, Dad, thanks for chatting with me about all this today. We'll get some resources up. I'll I'll find something to put up there at sykespeels.com.au. And we are recording this just before Christmas, so I hope everyone listening out there did have a, a very Merry Christmas and a wonderful New Year and very happy holiday season, however you're celebrating it, and we'll see you in the New Year. Wonderful, Rowan, and I know that we will have some resources up there on Jakara Anthony and flow. So that looks at the principles of flow, and also we've got an article up there on harmonious and obsessive passion. Perfect, awesome, Dad. Let's uh, let's go watch some cricket. Sounds good.